Hello, everyone. Welcome into Southeastern 14. I'm Blaine Gilmer. We're here for a special collective conversation that we're going to have with a very influential member of the NIL space. And we're going to get to that in just a second. Uh, guys, make sure that you are subscribing, liking, and turn on notifications for all the content coming out here because the SEC is as fast paced as it can possibly be. And the NIL and transfer portal space is as much involved in that as anything. And Walker Jones uh, with the Grove Collective, who will be our guest and bring in here in just a second, is as involved in that as anybody. Of course, we know what uh, Old Miss has been able to do in the transfer portal. We know uh, the momentum that Lane Kiffin and company have there. Also, the momentum the basketball team has there. So a lot of great stuff going on over in Oxford, and we're going to get to that here in just a second. Real quick, we do have to tell you about our friends over at Bet Online. Make sure that you hit those guys up if you're wanting to keep up with all the news, trends, and predictions. Guys, the NFL playoffs are right around the corner. Bowl season has come and gone. NBA is in full swing. Bet Online isn't taking a second off, and you shouldn't either. You go check out for all the information on there. Bet Online, it's where all the sports wagering info available to you on desktop and mobile access head over there to get into the action use our promo code believe that's b-l-e-a-v to receive your 50 percent welcome bonus on your first deposit bet online where the game starts and now guys it is time for us to start with none other than mr walker jones here walker thank you so much for uh, joining us here on this collective conversation sir good to be all look forward to chatting about all this stuff it's a busy time and uh exciting time it is a busy time for sure. And I guess what I wanted to ask you right off the bat is just, you know, you yourself, I know that you've got your your hands in a lot of different things from a business aspect. Uh, you, you you played at Ole Miss and you went on and had a, a career in business. And then a couple of guys, a couple of ones, one the lawyer uh, started the Grove Collective in that space. And then you get involved in this deal. And, and it's been really been kind of off and running for the Grove Collective. Talk to us just about how you got involved with this and what it's like kind of seeing the the start of this NIL era in college football and college sports altogether. Yeah, Blaine, look, it's, um, you know, my story is probably similar to a lot of other people. I, I followed NIL kind of as a fan casually. I uh, had a basic understanding of it. Obviously, it wasn't around when I played and, um, you know, didn't really know if I loved it, hated it. I didn't really understand a ton about it, but I knew it was something that was new and was going to probably have a major impact on, you know, the landscape of college athletics. And, um, you know, so I had, you know, really didn't have a great understanding of it until, you know, really, uh, about late spring, early summer of 2022. Um, I started getting a few phone calls from some of our coaches, some of our administrators, um, we had, as you mentioned previously, we had an attorney named William Liston, who's a great attorney in Jackson, Mississippi, who had started the Grove Collective back in December of 2021. Um, and he did it, got it up and running. He had a great understanding of kind of the legal side of NIL and the Mississippi State statute and, you know, got uh, the, the Grove Collective started and I think uh, did a really good job of, of kind of putting some of the pieces in place and then, you know, uh, they felt like they needed somebody else that had more of a marketing 
uh, approach, kind of a branding, uh, sports marketing type uh, experience, which was, you know, kind of my career in sports. And, um, and so it was really a perfect marriage between the legal side and being a really compliant and well uh, organized collective. And then me bringing in some of the uh, marketing tactics, tactics, sponsorship, uh, things like that from my background. And, and we kind of got together, we consolidated. Uh, there was a couple different collectives at Ole Miss and uh, we consolidated everybody underneath the Grove Collective because we felt it had a really good name, a great logo. It had the most uh, resources tied to it. And um, and really, you know, I spent the first probably three months just trying to learn, being really curious, asking a lot of questions. Um, what is a collective? Uh, what's the purpose of a collective? Um, and, you know, what is what could I possibly bring to the table that could help Ole Miss uh, distinguish itself in this evolving landscape. And so spent a lot of time talking to a lot of my contacts, asking a lot of questions, learning, and then taking what William had put together um, and trying to relaunch it and grow it across all our sports, across our entire fan base, uh, which we did in, like I said, early fall of 22. And, you know, I think some of those things that we thought early on worked for us. And again, consolidation, education, and then um, kind of the alignment and tie-in with the athletic department and the athletic foundation, which a lot of schools hadn't done at that time, but our state statute in Mississippi allowed us to coordinate and communicate with the university, which we took full advantage of, and that kind of got us off and running. So uh, I had to learn a little bit about it and then kind of figure out how, you know, when you're in, it's, when it's your alma mater and you're a former player, you want to do your best and not hurt your school. And so uh, I wanted to make sure that the plan that I was going to put together uh, was the right one for Ole Miss. And I think, um, you know, with through the efforts of a lot of people, uh, we end up getting a lot of it right on the early, in the early days. Yeah, and that leads to my first question. You know, how are you and your team at the Grove Collective able to get momentum so quickly? It really seems like you guys – we're on the forefront of a lot of things. I was reading uh, some some articles, some message board stuff out there where you guys are planning to to do something with being able with businesses to be able to round up to the nearest dollar and all these different type of things. Um, how how would you describe your ability to be out on the forefront of a lot of the the unknowns on this NIL space and some of the some of the ability to be unique in your approach to it? Well, I think you just said it right there, you know, where some people may see the unknowns, the ambiguous nature, the undefined scope of the landscape as, you know, paralyzing or, you know, um, you know, they may discount it because they don't understand it. We saw that that opportunity. We saw that as opportunity to be creative, to be progressive and to kind of forge our own path. And, you know, I think, you know, whether we agreed or disagreed with the model, uh, we thought that there was opportunity for a school like Ole Miss to be be a first mover um, and really take some calculated, not, I mean, risks maybe, but but really kind of push the envelope um, and, and really take the approach of, hey, we're going to try to blaze our own trail because that's really what we have to do at Ole Miss, given us being in the SEC and, you know, uh, the, the battles that we have to fight with much larger schools and fan bases. And so, yeah, that was really kind of my whole process. And, and a lot of that stemmed from my time at Under Armour when we were battling Nike and Adidas, who were obviously much bigger than us. 
and how at Under Armour were we a challenger brand and competing against Nike and Adidas and kind of the same thing Ole Miss has to do uh, and against the Blue Bloods in college athletics. And so we really, uh, you know, looked for opportunity to, to, to be really creative, to use the undefined landscape to our advantage. Um, and probably the, the, the one specific instance that probably meant the most to us was we were able to uh, – we had a press conference um, before the Kentucky game back in uh, September, in September of 2022, uh, where we kind of we relaunched the collective with, the, with this plan of consolidation and organization and all that and resources. And, and so we got everybody in the room together, our athletic director, our coaches, our athletes, our donors, our fans, the media, so they could see that the university and the athletic department were advocating and giving us their stamp of approval. And I think that's what we needed to be able to show people is that uh, it's okay to give to the Growth Collective. They're doing things the right way. It's legal. It's compliant. And, and I think doing that press conference to relaunch this new phase of the collective really kind of was the springboard to get us going and nobody had really done that and you know it took me a couple months to get our athletic director in our school to agree to it but credit to keith carter our athletic director kind of took a little bit of a you know ask for forgiveness and permission and we felt like it would be something that would propel us and it did and again that's kind of how we've approached everything is is to really create our own path forward um and be really progressive and creative and and you know i think our fans have responded to that how do you, you mentioned with coaches there um how difficult is that to go about okay here's what i can talk to coach about here's what i can't because technically they're not supposed to be right you know directing the how how does is there a structure in place between like you and lane or new and and coach beard and all these guys to say hey here's here's what here's how we're going to go about this so we don't mess something yeah. up yeah i think that look whenever you have people that at the end of the day are like-minded in the end result and i think you can figure out the mechanics of the relationship and you know coach kiffin coach beard coach bianco coach yo all our coaches at Ole Miss, our athletic director, we all knew that, you know, we had to do this um, in a very compliant manner. Uh, Ole Miss had, had gotten in some trouble previously, you know, with the NCAA, and we couldn't afford uh, to do anything to, to jeopardize um, our university. And so I think we all started with that premise of, look, let's be really creative and let's push the envelope as far as we can but let's don't go too far and be reckless. And, you know, and I think we figured out how to thread that needle of being really aggressive and progressive while not being reckless. And, and, and again, the coaches all kind of agreed with us on that, agreed with me. You know, I played football at Ole Miss when we were on the second worst probation since SMU. So I yeah. knew what happens when you run afoul of, of NCAA guidance and how damaging that can be. And so for me to put my name on this, it had to be done compliant. And and I made that really clear to Coach Kiffin and to Keith and everybody, and, and, and they wanted the same thing too. So when you're both on the same page there, it, you know, you kind of figure out the, the, the right way to work together. And again, um, I think that, that we figured out, okay, look, we're going to make sure that whatever we do, we can stand by it, we can put our name on it, um, and, and we're going to do anything uh, that if it ever came – 
uh, to a point of, are we proud of how we've operated? I think we all want to be able to answer that question. Yes. Now, the hard part of that went to your question. The hard part is we didn't really know exactly what that meant. We didn't know yeah. exactly what the letter of law was going to be. And as you well know, NIL changes and evolves daily, weekly, monthly. Daily. And <laughs> so, you know, some things that you couldn't do that now that everybody's doing. And so, you know, we, we've tried to kind of stay ahead of that. And, and again, I, this is where I speak to the alignment with the university, having a compliance department and the resources that Ole Miss had to give us guidance, to give us coaching, and to also be willing to push the envelope a little bit and know that yeah. we needed to be aggressive. I think it speaks to why one of the main reasons we've been successful is we had that coordination, that communication, that alignment between the two, and they gave us great counsel. Yeah, and, it, you know, it just no more famous of a – uh, situation than I guess what happened with the young man that 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 Florida was intending to bring in last class and and the right hand didn't know what the left hand was doing and promising certain things so it never made sense to me that okay you're going to have these collectives and you're going to be able to uh, try to try to provide uh, financial gain to these people once they're on your roster but the coaches can't have any kind of say of who is going to get that I mean it just didn't make any sense to me so I think there needs to be more thought put into that if it, if it hasn't uh, already um real broad question here if you ran the ncaa what would you change about the nil and and transfer portal space now that you've been in in it for a while wow if i ran the ncaa whew, yeah i don't know i'm <laughs> that's a tough one um yeah look i think uh and i'll give look at charlie baker and i have um have agreed on some things we disagreed on some things you know when we were testifying up in dc but i do respect the job uh and i sympathize with what he's trying to do and you know he's trying to come in and and change decades of ineptitude and inaction that's kind of led to some of these problems um so i give governor baker a lot of credit for you know taking on that challenge um and i know he's he's dealing with a lot and so uh, while, while I may disagree with him on certain things, I do agree in the overall principle that there needs to be a national standard. There needs yeah. to be a site, there needs to be guidance. You know, collectives, they may have been created two or three years ago to get around the rules and to be these booster funded organizations to go get players. And that may have been how they were initially created, but I think we've all evolved now to functioning, efficient and compliant organizations that represent the university and try to give all our student athletes an NIL platform. And so, and, you know, there's this big mis misnomer that collectives want to just operate in this free market without any restriction. And that's not the case. You know, we, we, we don't, we're for oversight. We're for a national standard. So, um, so again, I think, uh, again, now we may disagree about what that means and how we get there, but I think, you know, we do need some, some guidance here and we do need uh, some defined rules that we can all follow uh, that don't preclude athletes from earning compensation, but also give us all the same set of rules to make the decisions we need to make every day. Um, and so, you know, you talk about the transfer, you know, what I would say is there needs to be some restriction on the transfer. Like the transfer portal was created uh, to give athletes a chance to get out of a bad situation. A coach gets fired, coach leaves, they graduate from the school, or they have some sort of life event that happens you know, everybody would say we're for those. But this kind of unmitigated be able to transfer whenever you want, multi-times, and you get frustrated at school because they're not paying you enough money 
or you don't get to start or they suspended you for skipping class or something and just pick it up and leaving. I think that's not in anybody's best interest. And so I do think there needs to be some tightening in of, of the portal where, you know, athletes still are able to get out of a bad situation if something happens outside their control or if they graduate or if they've been at a school for a certain amount of time. But, you know, we're having to re-recruit our athletes 365 days. You know, we're constantly having to re-recruit them and make sure that we're taking care of them. The coaches, uh, the administration, the collective, you know, we're all dealing with it. And it's it's exhausting. Um, and I think it's not what the true intention of what the portal was created for. So uh, so I do think there, there could be some some uh, some smart uh regulations around that about how many times and when you can transfer and then i just think a national standard would be helpful you know right now there's i think there's 36 or 37 different state statutes right now so literally everybody can kind of you know my i can't run my collective like the guys in missouri can run theirs because of their state statutes different but yet we're in the same conference and we're recruiting you know we're talking to a lot of the same players and um so again some sort of preemption or federal preemption or something that creates a national standard that everybody can operate off of uh, as a baseline. And I think that would be helpful uh, regardless of what the geography, regardless of what state you're in. Um, and, and maybe the NCA and Congress isn't the one to enact that. Maybe that's the power four conferences now. Yeah. You know, they're the ones to say, hey, look, if you're going to be in the SEC, these are um the standards that your state statute and your collective have to follow if you want to have access to the revenue and you want to be a part and you want to have membership in this conference so maybe it's not the nca maybe it's it's the power four you know commissioners i think we've got to be really careful i testified in front of the senate back in october and i, I think that we got to be careful about asking congress to do too much um and so you know again i think those are things that we can figure out so i think again some general broad regulations on the portal and then some sort of national standard uh, that we can all operate off of uh, that would preempt all these myriad of state statutes would be helpful. In terms of that, what kind of legal agreements or what kind of are contracts needed between the party getting the NIL, the, the, the university? And I know that, you know, you got to be careful with employee status and all that, but are contracts needed or is that just totally unrealistic until you get that standard that you just talked about? I think they are. I look, I, I, and again, we, we're we fortunate enough with our university and our state statute where we disclose all of our agreements. We don't, we don't contract with an athlete until we submit that agreement to our compliance department. They give us a, um, a check off um, and then we go forward with the contracting process. So I do like that. I like that transparency. I like our compliance department checking our work, making sure what we're doing is right and above board and in the best interest of the student athlete. So I, I don't have any problem with transparency and disclosure uh, behind the scenes of, of what we're contracting for. I think we got to be careful about, you know, confidentiality of just releasing all these agreements to the to the public. I don't think that's in the student athlete's best interest. But I do think a check off from the university and some oversight from the university to make sure that the contracting process is fair. Uh, it meets relevant NCA guidelines and state statutes. Um, so so I do I do I am for that. You know, a standardized contract, I don't know if we need to go where everybody has to have a standardized contract because there's a lot of variability, whether it's yeah. a deal collective or a deal with Bose or Beats or FedEx 
or Realtree or whatever. You know, there's a lot of different, these, these deals come in various forms. Um, so I don't know if a standardized agreement is, is, is truly necessary if you have the disclosure and transparency rules with your university. Um, and I made that comment up in, on Capitol Hill in our testimony in front of Congress that, you know, at Ole Miss, we, there's not a contract that I submit that I write without getting the check off from the university. Um, so I think that that gets around some of these predatory practices and these awful deals that you hear out there. The young man from Florida who signed yeah. away his, his rights and his intellectual property and, and his NFL earnings, like that would have never happened here because yeah. – our school would have caught that immediately. So I do think you've got to have one of the, one of one of the two. And I just think the the university can be a great, you know, over, you know, can be a great big brother, so to speak in that process. What do you, what do you think all this stuff looks like five years from now? If you had to take your best guess, I mean, is this, is, is this still, is this just the tip of the iceberg or where, where are we headed with all this stuff in your opinion? Well, I, look, I, I've said it. I, I think NIL is going to be here. Um, I think it's going to be here. It's not going away. I think it, it will evolve. It needs to evolve. You know, uh, again, I, you know, this is just, we're just now in year three. Yeah. And like any free market model, it's going to go way one way. It's going to, you know, the pendulum is going to swing one way, then it's going to swing the other way, and then it's going to end up kind of going back into the middle and have some self-regulation on it. And, you know, I've, I've made that Congress, uh, I made that comment in our testimony that, you know, we're just in year three of an emerging free market. Are there some things that need to be fixed? Absolutely. Are there some growing pains? Absolutely. Um, will it evolve and will it change and will it regulate itself just like history has shown us? Yes. Uh, but there's far more good being done than bad. You know, the bad things get all the publicity, the good things, you know, maybe get discounted a little bit and there's far more good being done with NIL than bad. And so I do think that for that purpose, I don't think it's going to go away, but I do think the model uh, needs to evolve. And and when I say that probably the biggest concern is sustainability. You know, it, when you're just a donor funded model, donor fatigue is an issue. You know, we're lucky at Ole Miss. We won 11 games in football. Chris Beard's off to a great start in basketball. Our women's team's doing great. You know, I think our baseball team will be good. Our Olympic sports are competitive. So, but that may not always be the case. And yeah. and in downtimes, when you're a donor-funded model with the ebbs and flows of wins and losses, you know, it's going to be hard to sustain this. And so I do think there's going to have to be a real conversation around sustainability, which is in the best interest of the student-athlete long-term. And, and that's going to probably have to manifest itself in some sort of collective bargaining with a ref share, um, the grant of rights, the, the mil hundreds of millions of dollars pouring in through these grant of rights deals with the TV contracts. I think we're going to have to figure out how, what percentage of that is going to find, find its way to the athletes to take the pressure off this being a, a 90, 95% donor funded model, because I just don't think that's going to be sustainable for the vast majority of schools out there, which again, hurts the student athlete in the long term. So I think that's why the model's got to got to evolve. And and again, maybe that's, I don't know if the NCAA can do that. I don't know if Congress can do that. I really, the more I think about this, I really think the commissioners of the, con the conference commissioners, specifically the power four have a great opportunity to grab this conversation and try to shift it in that. Cause 
we really don't want the federal government dictating what a rev share is in college athletics because it probably won't be pretty. And it could actually end up affecting those marginalized athletes more if we let some sort of federally mandated rev share take place. Lane Kiffin has been out as outspoken as anybody out there saying, hey, basically what they've done is they've allowed legalized cheating now. Uh, He said there were terms free agency. It's free agency every year. So that's why I was asking about contracts are not in terms of a standardized contract, but maybe some accountability on the player side as well, because a lot of the public argument is out there. Okay. Well, if, if basically these young men and young women are getting compensated, they're now should be treated like adults and there ought to be some, whether you sign for a two year period or a three year period or something along those lines, do you think there needs to be some accountability on that side of things? Yeah. Again, I mean, it, it's, we're in that, we're, we're caught in this, this, perfect storm of no no man's land between an, a professional model and a collegiate amateur model and you know you can argue it either way but you know we're at the point right now where you know it looks like it's a professional model it looks like an employment model but yet the historical definition and perception of amateur athletics doesn't want to dictate that and doesn't want to go to that point. And, you know, and I do think the, like I, I have a couple of friends who are NFL GMs and I talk to them all the time about this and they're like, man, I can't imagine being in every the year, every year that your people are unrestricted free agents. Yeah. It's like, can you imagine being an NFL GM with no salary cap, no collective bargaining? Uh, you have to raise all your money. You know, Man. you don't, you know, like, and your players, you can do a deal with them and they can leave at any point. And it's so, not binding, right? There's no binding. There's nothing really to hold the players really, as long as they're meeting the minimum academic standards, there's really nothing to hold them there. And so, you know, the market's not set up, the model's not set up for a long-term sustainability because we're caught in that no man's land. And we're going to have to decide what that's going to look like going forward. And so, and I, and there's that battle between the traditional definition of college athletics and this emerging definition of what it's going to. And, and so, and change is tough. Change is tough for all of us. And, and again, I don't love a lot of the aspects of it, but I think it's inevitable. And if we stick our head in the sand and think it's going to solve itself, then I think we're, we're doing all the athletes a disservice. So, you know, Jack Swarbrook, who was on that commit on that panel with me, he brought up a great point is that maybe Congress's most beneficial um, involvement in this could be creating a special status where they there is collective bargaining and there is, you know, the ability to somewhat be treated like an employee but don't have all the things okay. that come with employment, unionization and all those other things that are scary to people, you know, yeah. and so. Maybe Congress can create an exempt status or a special status where, you know, it kind of solves both sides of that argument uh, and it allows for collective bargaining, but doesn't take it all the way in the full employment mode where you've got unions and, you know, Fair Labor and Standards Acts and all those types of things, you know, coming in there. And again, maybe that's realistic. Maybe it's not. Uh, I'll leave the much smarter people uh, than me to figure that out. But I do think that 
that you know we're 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 dealing with a model um, that's kind of in this perfect storm of we want to hold people accountable, but we don't want to let go of that traditional definition of what a student athlete is. And uh, you've been very gracious with your time. Just got a couple more uh, for you here. How elevated are some of these numbers we see reported by media and especially organizations like On3 with these NIL evaluate? I mean, these numbers, it's like, are they just pulling them out of the sky? Like, I mean, I, I don't I don't understand. I Because to me, I was always taught that the economy is built on scarcity there, Walker, and I just don't think that there's that much money floating around out there for everybody to be getting a million here, three million here, eight million at Tennessee, all this kind of stuff. I mean, how elevated are some of these numbers? Yeah, look, I mean, again, there, there definitely is some uh, some urban legend and, and some, some misinformation out there. I will give on three credit in the fact that they have tried to really make a concerted and deliberate effort to try to put some metrics into this model. And so I do, I do like that. I do like the fact that on three is, and I've met with those guys and I think there are a lot of really smart people at on three and they're trying to come up with some way to, to evaluate, you know, roster value uh, versus, you know, market value and how do you create, you know, what that number is for a student athlete, how, impactful are they for a brand ambassador but how important are they for the roster and how we create you know that that some sort of valuation so you know i do you know uh salute those guys for trying to figure that out i do think that it isn't scientific um and you know i'll hear a lot of times kids will tell me well my own three valuation was this and i'm like (laughs) okay explain that to me well i don't know i just pulled it up and that's what they said my own three valuation was and i say well you know, we can argue that both ways. Um, and so, uh, you know, again, I think that, um, and that's probably the question that I get the most that I don't have a great answer for is, you know, determining valuation. Now, I will say that, you know, we we work really hard about putting a process in place. I try to take my sports marketing mind from my Under Armour days and my days at CAA as an agent to try to determine kind of what that market value could be. And then we do have great conversations with our with our coaches and our staffs about, you know, how important is this player to your roster and how, you know, what's their level of talent and, you know, how productive they're going to be. Because, look, the more productive you are on the field, the more marketable you are off the field yeah. and try to figure out what that correlation is. So I think we've, we've worked really hard to try to create a system at Ole Miss where we're just not arbitrarily throwing darts against the wall. Like, all right, I think this player is worth this and – Man, I don't know. Let's see. This player's worth that. You know, like we try to we try to do it, but again, it's it is a challenge and it's not scientific. And it's probably if you talk to any collective leader out there or any coach, you know, it's probably the the one question that probably stumps all of us. Is the Ryan Day rule real? Uh Ryan Day famously came out and said, guys, it's gonna take thirteen million dollars a year to keep us afloat on this NIL space at Ohio State. Is that a is that a real deal there? Is it that kind of cash that has to be collected every year for a football program? I don't, again, I don't love those things. When people make those statements, I kind of just cringe a little bit. Like, where do you pull that number from? You know, like, yeah. now, I think these coaches aren't idiots. Like, Ryan yeah. Day going, well, I'm going to ask for the moon. And yeah. if I get it, then great. And if I don't get it, I can tell everybody, well, I told y'all it was going to cost $13 million and we only raised seven. So it's not my fault that we're getting beat by Michigan. And, you know, Matt, Matt Sorry, will tell everybody enough. that he needs a million five for a quarterback. 
you know, and, you know, if he doesn't get a million five to pay a quarterback, then he can say, well, I didn't get enough money to go get the quarterback, so it's not my fault, you know. So, again, I think there's part of that coaches who are masters at creating leverage and, and deniability, you know. So I think when I hear people say, like, it's going to take this amount of money, you know, I, I, I've always been the proponent of, and again, at Ole Miss, we kind of have to be this way, and I say it all the time, and I kind of picked this up in my days at Under Armour, we got to make $1 spend like three. We're never going to raise more money than anybody in the conference. We're never going to be the guy paying the most amount of money. But what we have to be is the most impactful and the most efficient with our money. And if we're going to spend, oh, I don't know, $6 million in football, we better be really, really impactful. And we our yeah. margin for error better be really small because somebody's going to spend $9 million that we're going to play this year. We yeah. played, you know, again, I won't name any names, but we played a bunch of teams this year that I know for a fact spent more money than we did and we beat them. Um, and so again, now is that because we spent our money better? No, that's not a hundred percent right, but we have to figure out a way to make our dollar stretch further because that's the type of school that we're at at Ole Miss um, where other schools may have an endless stream of the money coming to them. So uh, I just think it's when I hear people say these absolutes, I'm like, where are you getting that from? And this is the last question for you here. Was this offseason the perfect time to be aggressive in the transfer portal in the NIL space for the football program at Ole Miss because of what you guys were retaining and also the 12-team playoff coming next year and there being a real opportunity with the talent you guys have, the success that Lane has built, and what is now going to be in that locker room and on that field there for Ole Miss to really jump into the tip top of the national conversation. Was this just the perfect confluence of events? You nailed it. I'm glad you asked that question because um, this was a deliberate plan for us. And again, it doesn't mean that it's all or nothing in 2024. And if we don't win the national championship or finish in the top four that we're done, but we did make a concerted effort 18 months ago, two years ago saying, we think the 12 team playoff is going to be the defining moment in college athletics. You know, uh, March Madness has been around forever and is phenomenal because of what it is. This is our version of March Madness in college football. And I just think there's never been a more monumental shift in the number one, you know, monetary sport in all of college athletics like the 12 team playoff. And we need to target, we need to be in that first 12 team playoff. And so not only did we want to make it a goal of, you know, the decisions we make now, meaning two years ago, are going to determine if we'll make it in 24. You don't just wake up in June of 2024 and go, man, I think I hope we can make the playoff like that's you got to build this thing months and years in advance. So that was a definite goal for us is how do we put a team together over the next two years to put ourselves in the best position to make be one of those 12 and then when we saw the type of roster we had this year and our ability to win 11 games for the first time in school history and what I think the type of culture we had in the locker room to get those guys to come back, that if we can go be really aggressive in the portal and go plug a few holes, the Georgia game, as painful as it was that night in Athens, I mean, we got the crap beat out of us. But I remember sitting there and I've heard Lane say it too, like we all saw that and go, okay, this is where we are in reality. And that's what we need to get to. 
and what are we missing to get to that point? And so literally for as miserable as the night that was in Athens, it was kind of a defining moment for us to say, okay, now we know what we have to do coming up here in two months to put a team in place that could beat a team like Georgia in a game like that and give ourselves a chance to get in the 12-team playoff. And so that Georgia game was a defining moment for us that validated the plan that we had for the last 18 months of what we need to do to be able to do that. So, yes, it was intentional and it was deliberate. Fantastic stuff. Walker, thank you so much for joining us and educating really a lot of us on this new, like you said, year three, but it still seems like it's new and nobody knows what's going on. So we greatly appreciate your time. Uh, and guys, thank you so much for tuning in here on Southeastern 14. Remember, we're presented by Bet Online, and we will catch you guys next time to talk more, not only Ole Miss football, but all SEC football right here on Southeastern 14. Thank <laughs> you.